As 2022 winds down, we wanted to preview some coming attractions at Theopolis. We will host two online workshops in the spring of 2023. Peter Lightheart will teach on the historical books of the Old Testament, and Alistair Roberts and James B. John will teach a class on biblical numerology. Lightheart will also be teaching our class on Pauline theology for our Easter term course, and that will be in the month of March. Paul Buckley and I will be going around the country training churches to sing and chant the Psalms. James Wood and Peter Lightheart will continue their monthly Civitas podcast. We're also going to release a new Theopolis Explorations volume, which will be a theology of Sunday by one of our Theopolis fellows, Jack Vernichevich. We also plan to publish our collection of essays on ecclesiocentric post-liberalism, which is written by several members of the Civitas group. And as always, we're going to keep plugging away on our weekly podcasts, video series, and essays on Bible, liturgy, and culture. To get all of this done, we really need your help. So we ask you to please consider a year-end donation to Theopolis so that we can have a good new year and get all of this important work done for the church. To donate at any amount or even to become a Theopolis partner, there's a link to give in the show notes. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our Wednesday series, going through the book Through New Eyes by James Jordan. And here, the guys will be discussing chapter nine, which is on angels. Here at the end of the year, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating on Spotify and iTunes. That really helps to get our show in front of more and more listeners. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are helped by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Through New Eyes, Chapter 9. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background manning the recording equipment, and he'll be editing and smoothing it out for you. Now, we're recording this in the week after Christmas 2022, so Merry Christmas to you all, and uh, we pray that you had a, a joyous Christmas and that uh, you were once again refreshed and renewed by the, no- by the good news that God himself has come in the person of his son into our world to bear the curse that we deserve to live a human life uh, in order to redeem human life and to bring it to resurrection life. And we pray that that good news has filled your holiday and uh, will fill the coming year as well. We're in the middle of a podcast series going through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, subtitled Developing a Biblical View of the World. This is a a key text for a number of us. It's It's a book that I've used regularly over the years in my preaching and teaching. When I was preaching on a regular basis, I would often refer to uh, to Through New Eyes if I got stuck to see if, if uh, Jim had anything to say about a particular passage. And often he had just the right thing to say to kind of break a log jam in my thinking and open up what the passage that I was studying was all about. And it's had that kind of effect. And it's just a, a transformative book in the way that we read scripture. It's a transformative book in the way we, we read the world. We're on chapter nine this week. And chapter nine is devoted to angels, and I think this is a this is really an important chapter, and uh, it's it's really significant. I think that Jim included this in the book. We know from the first verse of the Bible that God created a two tiered universe, 
he created earth and the rest of the creation account is largely about God forming and shaping earth. And much of the history, much of what's in the Bible is about what's going on on earth. But we always have to keep in mind Genesis 1-1 and the fact that we're living in a two-tiered universe and that heaven and earth are not sealed off from each other, uh, but rather heaven is constantly impinging on earth. That becomes evidence fairly regularly throughout the Bible when you have the appearances of angels, which is the topic of chapter 9 of Three New Eyes. When you have the appearance of angels, occasionally you have the heavens open and a prophet is swept up into the throne room to see the Lord exalted in his throne. This happens particularly, of course, in the book of Revelation where John is swept up through a door in the firmament and he enters into the heavenly temple and sees the ongoing worship of the angels in heaven. But that's often kind of in the background of what the, the narrative that the Bible is telling then uh, and the, the instruction the Bible is giving us. But it, uh, if it's in the background on the surface, it's always there. Uh, and heaven is a, is a crucial category and a crucial reality for us as we think about how, how we're to develop a biblical view of the world, which is what Jim's aim is. So we want to develop a biblical view of the world. We have to recognize heaven is not, um, uh, is not a distant reality, but heaven is constantly coming near to us. Uh, in fact, it's, you know, even, despite the kind of spatial metaphors that the Bible used to describe heaven, it's probably better described as a kind of dimension that accompanies uh, earthly existence. And the focus on angels is particularly interesting. Uh, I don't think Jim develops this theme quite as much, uh, what I'm going to say in a moment, uh, he develops it quite as much in Three New Eyes as he does elsewhere. But it's it's an important part of his understanding of the Bible and of biblical history, the relationship between humans and angels. And you you can tell the entire story of the Bible and the entire story of humanity as a story of, the, of that interaction of angels and man. Man is created to rule the earth, to have dominion, to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the animals that are on the earth. He's supposed to subdue the earth and to glorify it. But angels are given to man. Uh, Jim's uh, frequent, his frequent analogy is that angels are given to be uh, like the drill sergeant who is training the new recruits eventually the new recruit is going to surpass the drill sergeant and the private who is being trained by the drill sergeant who has had to salute the sergeant. At some point, the sergeant is going to have to salute the uh, private who has been elevated, advanced beyond the sergeant, has become a lieutenant or a captain or something. That's the, that's the purpose of angels. They're supposed to train humanity during humanity's infancy and childhood so that humanity can be elevated above the angels. Uh, and this not not just, uh, Jim Jim has made this point, but this is a point that goes back to the uh, at least to Irenaeus, and it's developed by some of the church fathers that Satan is an angel who sins out of envy for man. And a good friend uh, Gerald Heastand, who has uh, been involved with the Center for Pastor Theologians in Chicago, uh, he did his doctoral dissertation on Irenaeus's understanding of the fall and the motivation of Satan not being pride, but being envy for for humanity. Satan doesn't want humanity elevated above the angels, and so he tries to tries to um, derail that plan, uh, and that kind of extends the history of humanity under the uh, probation and under the tutelage of angels. And so the whole Old Covenant, humanity is under the tutelage of angels. And Paul occasionally points to this. Galatians talked about the law giving through the mediation of angels. In, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews of the first couple of chapters, we have this whole discussion about uh, the relationship between angels and Jesus. And I think that's that has to do with the difference between the old and the new covenant. So you're under 
uh, humanity is under angelic rulers and governors, under angelic uh, tutors, Paul calls it in Galatians, uh, until uh, humanity reaches its majority in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the first man to be elevated above the angels. And then in Christ, we are we mature above the angels. And you have this transition to the book of Revelation from uh, and angels who start out on thrones with crowns. The beginning of the book, they cast their crowns before the throne of the Lord, and they give up their thrones. And at the end of Revelation, when you get to the millennial period, it's not angels who are on thrones, not the ancient ones who are occupying those thrones, but now it's human beings, the martyrs in particular. And so what we have in Revelation is the end of the old covenant angelic order and the uh, the movement to a uh, an, an order where human beings are elevated. And they human beings, we have reached our majority in Christ so that we were a little while lower than the angels, but now we're elevated above the angels. And eventually, Paul says, we will judge angels. So from creation to eschaton, you can tell the whole story of the Bible as a story of humanity's relationship to angels, the proper and improper kind of relation to angels. Uh, and again, even though that's not that's not the way that the Bible tells the story in on the surface. That relationship is constantly running along behind the surface, and angels are constantly running behind the surface of the biblical story as important players in that story. Peter, would you repeat the person who did the dissertation on yeah. Irenaeus? Who is that? It's Gerald Heestand, H-I-E-S-T-A-N-D. And Gerald is a he was the director of the Center for Pastor Theologians in Chicago for a number of years. Now he's he's still on the board and uh, has a role there, but he's he's a, a full-time pastor at uh, Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, Illinois. Uh, but uh, he did his dissertation on Irenaeus. I don't I don't think it's been published yet. He's he's pursuing publication, but he's he did a really interesting contrast of kind of the the import of that that understanding of Satan's motivation, his whole understanding of um, humanity's history, the trajectory of humanity's history, and he he did a kind of comparison with the Augustinian, the more dominant Augustinian idea that Satan fell because of his pride. Mm-hmm. Did he identify the fall of Satan with the temptation of Adam and Eve, or does he have a Satan falling before that sometime? Do you remember? Uh, I don't know. I, okay. I would have to. I would have to check with him. I don't remember how that. Yeah. We've had some conversations about that, but I don't remember whether he took that position or not. I know that that's that, that's my position, and I know it's yours, Jeff. In fact, I probably yeah. learned it from you. <laughs> well, right. I, I don't know. Maybe I introduced it a while back, but I I introduced it after I think reading Irenaeus. I'd have to remember. It's been 10, 15 years. But your comment about how the history and of humanity and angels are intertwined. I mean, that's right there in Genesis 3. And if indeed the angels were created to be servants, as Paul says in Hebrews 1, ministering servants to mankind, then what Satan does, what this the angelic Satan does there, instead of instructing and helping and guarding and tutoring uh, Adam and Eve, he seduces them. He doesn't serve them. He seduces them. And that makes the most sense of, for, for me anyway, and I think for us, many of us, that, you know, at the end of day six, God says everything's very good. Everything's very good, you know, the heavens above and the earth beneath. And then on the seventh day, Adam and Eve are seduced by Satan. 
and then both of them are fallen after that. Uh, there was something else about that too, just about the angels. Yeah, you know, so that what, what you have in when Yahweh comes and speaks to Adam and then the serpent and then the woman speaking to the serpent, because you have done this, that seems to indicate that's when the curse comes upon Satan because he's deceived the woman. That's why Satan will be crushed by the seed. But if Satan fell at an earlier time, one would think that he would already have been under God's curse and in for a crushing, a head crushing. But the text says that he's cursed and forced to grovel and bite the dust and that he would be defeated and crushed because of what he did in the garden. And that's just, I think, one of the reasons why I think it makes a lot more sense to see Satan and other angels fall with him. Of course, we're told that later. We don't know how that works in the background, but that seems to be there as well. Uh, just a, a follow-up bibliographical note. Um, Gerald Heastant has published an article on Ernest's doctrine of creation in the Bulletin of Ecclesial Theology. That's the bulletin, that's the journal that the Center for Pastor Theologians puts out. Uh, this was published in June of 2019. And he's talking about I think that article is more broadly about Irenaeus's doctrine of creation, but I think he touches on the the question of uh, of uh, Satan's motivation. Uh, I don't I don't see uh, searching on on Amazon. I don't see a a book length study yet from Gerald, but I know that he's he's trying to get that published somewhere. With Satan's attack upon the woman, I wonder whether we're supposed to see this. And I think um, Jonathan Edwards describes it this way as an attack upon the character of humanity as the bride. That the bride is is not just that there's a a young officer being raised up to a new office. It's the fact that humanity is appointed as a bride for the son, and in that respect, it um, using Edward's illustration, it's like all the nobles and the authorities in the land under the king, who is going to marry this woman of low estate, and that woman of low estate will become the queen who exceeds all the others. And so the attack upon the woman could be read um, in light of that, that it's not just um, a young officer who's going to be raised up. It, this is the bride that's been chosen despite her low estate. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, it fits with the kind of imagery that uh, I cited earlier, the military. Uh, it's, it's a different way of saying, but it, 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 uh, there's, a, there's an overlap there. I, I think that just to fill out what Jeff was saying, Part of the argument in favor of uh, the uh, Satan's fall being simultaneously simultaneous with humanity's fall, part of that is uh, skepticism about the the passages in the prophets that have traditionally been used to talk about to to, to justify a uh, kind of pre-fall fall of Satan. You know, kind of the the Milton Paradise Lost idea of a rebellion in heaven that's then followed by a temptation on earth. And, you know, Isaiah 14, for example, is often used, uh, and it does describe the fall of Lucifer, the, you know, uh, the, the star of light that's, that's brought down. But the whole context, it's not about, there's nothing in the context that indicates it's talking about a, a fallen angel. Uh, it's certainly making an analogy, as, as does Ezekiel 28, it's making an analogy to some very primordial kind of fall. But uh, in both cases, both passages are, I think, are uh, quite easily read as the, the, the background narrative is not a satanic fall, the fall of Satan, but the fall of humanity. So 
the one who's the guardian in the garden of God in Ezekiel 28, that could be a description of, uh, of Adam just as much as it can be a description of Satan. In fact, it's more directly a description of Adam's role in the garden at that point. So part, part, of, the, part of the argument, Jeff gave a positive argument, everything's very good at the end of day six. So there hasn't been an, uh, an angelic fall. But then the negative argument is that those passages that are usually cited to describe that are talking about, uh, they don't seem to be talking about that event, any kind of event like that. Yeah, or, or or even if they are alluding to that event, maybe it's not um, with the anticipation that we're meant to um, process Satan's fall directly in light of it. I mean, um, this is, I guess, a broader point that we could discuss. But to some extent, if you see the fall of a king, you know, we know that kings are, and this gets back to some of what Jimmy's saying, we know that kings are likened to stars and we know that angels are, likened to stars and we know that satan fell due to pride and um we know that the kings you're talking about the babylonian king's pride is an issue there and and so we, we're almost bound to see some uh parallel and some read across and seeing one in light of the other or, or the other in light of the first one um but obviously how far we're uh meant to push that is, is another another issue isn't it just moving on, if, if I may, I, I wanted to say I, I found this um, chapter really, really stimulating to um, read and, and chew over. And, and I, I wanted to um, uh, give, I mean, on page 106 now, Jim's argument that um, angels were created at the very beginning, I, I guess, on kind of what you could call day one or, or, or maybe even um, prior to it. And he grounds that in Job um, 38. Uh, there you have a, a reference to the morning stars singing together. Um, and that's in parallel with the sons of God, which is invariably, as far as I can see, um, with one possible exception, um, a reference to angelic um, beings. And Jim makes the point that that is um, in the context in Job of very uh primordial primordial things um where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth um determined its measurements um laid its cornerstone this kind of sounds extremely primal um and it's only after the uh morning stars have been mentioned in job that god then goes on to talk about a time when he shut in the sea and made the clouds um, a garment for the earth and and so forth and so jim says um that kind of angels were were very first in in god's creation and i i, f I found that um very persuasive as an argument yeah i agree i think that's that is a that's a persuasive argument uh, the i guess the other more inferential one is uh, from genesis 1 1 god creates heaven and i think with jim this is a this is the argument that some of the church fathers make. I think Augustine believes that that's talking about the highest heaven. Not, It's certainly not talking about the firmament heaven, which is made on day two. It's talking about the highest heaven. So you begin on, 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 at Genesis 1-1 with the highest heaven. At the end of the creation account, you have the statement that God created uh, the heavens and the earth and all their hosts. So there's a reference in Genesis 2 to the hosts of heaven, which given that that's referring to the highest heaven there hasn't been any been any reference to a separate act of creating the hosts of the highest heaven so somewhere in that in genesis 1 they were created and there's no explicit reference to it 
seems like the best option is to say that they were created. Heavens are created full. Heavens are created glorious. Heaven is created complete. And that's why, as Jim points out elsewhere in this book, that heaven becomes a model for earth and the process of earthly history is a glorification of earth, or you could call it a heavenization of earth. One thing I think we could discuss as we um, look into the subject is just how we are supposed to think about the discussions of angels. If you look in um, rabbinic literature, for instance, there is extensive speculation about the different classes and ranks of angels, 10 different classes in some and um, less in others, more in others. In the intertestamental um, apocalyptic literature, we have great descriptions of visions of heaven. We have some of that in scripture. We have it in Revelation, in Daniel, something of that in Zechariah as well. But for the most part, when you're reading the scriptures, the amount of attention given to angels is fairly modest compared to some of the other literature that is um, extra biblical. And I wonder, how are we supposed to treat questions about angels? Is this a sort of speculative discussion that we need to really keep reins upon? Um, Paul talks about the danger of worship of angels within the early church. And I, I do wonder, particularly in the current environment, where there is a lot of interest in some of the um, work that's being done on the angels, the host of heaven, the demons, and what sorts of beings these might all be, how these fit in with various other myths of other societies, with reports of UFOs, whatever it is. How, as those who are committed to scripture and to the clear revelation that we are given within it, are we supposed to handle those sorts of discussions and the speculations that they lead us into? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and it's a, a very pastoral concern. Uh, over the years, I've had many people who get uh, caught up in these speculative, highly romantic kind of views about angels and what they do and how they interact with us. Um, so, for example, just a few months ago, I had um, one of the teachers in my congregation give me a little children's book that was designed to help Christian children understand the death of their grandparents. Uh, I think that was the case in this book. And of course, it had the grandmother turning into an angel and communicating with the young child in a dream. And the implication, well, it um, was just an implication. The, the direct application at the end of the book was that your departed loved ones turn into angels and then speak to you through dreams and you should find comfort in that. That kind of over-romanticized view of angels is pretty common in America. I mean, I think it goes all the way back. I looked into this a bit at the time. It goes all the way back, especially in American piety to the 19th century. And one of the things I think Jim's chapter does, and I've copied this chapter off. This, In fact, this chapter is falling apart in my book. I've just copied this chapter off and give it to people. I know we can talk about angels as cosmic controllers in a few minutes if we want, but just his exposition here and explanations kind of put things in context so people can say, oh, okay, that's what angels are about. You know, also, we, I, the big question I always get is from Matthew 22, when Jesus is confronting the uh, Sadducees who come to him and talk to him about 
the resurrection. And then he says, you know, there won't be marriage or any marriage or being given in marriage because we'll be like the angels. And that has been also misused in popular piety, uh, especially when we think about death and turning into angels. So, so I think Jim's chapter here is pretty helpful overview for people who have questions about angels. Yeah, I think I wonder if part of the impulse behind that obsession is a, is a misunderstanding about uh, the relationship of humans and angels that I was summarizing at the beginning. And I'm, I'm thinking that you have this kind of longstanding paradigm where angels are um, in, in ontologically, you, you have this ontological hierarchy of God, spiritual beings, angels, superior because they're spiritual beings, human beings who are material and therefore somewhat inferior to the spiritual beings that are angels, and then other other physical beings and so on. But that the biblical picture is is more complicated. There, that it, it, there's a history in the as I was pointing out. There's a history in the re- relationship with between angels and human beings, and there's no the 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 ultimate result is not that angels have this kind of uh, permanent supremacy over human beings, but but the opposite. The angels are going to be uh, subordinate to human beings, and they serve in order to elevate human beings. Uh, and then uh, cheerfully cede their thrones and their crowns, as we see in Revelation 4. So I think part of it, and, and I think that that's, that's a pretty deep-seated bias, as I said, in, in church history. You get, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about angels. You you mentioned the intertestamental stuff, Alistair, but there's also, of course, pseudo-Dionysus with the, with the angelic hierarchy and the, the nine orders of angels and a lot of speculation in the Middle Ages. Part of that is because angels pose a... Uh, a metaphysical dilemma. Uh, Marsha Kolish, in her book on uh, medieval thought, points out that angels are a metaphysical puzzle for medievals. Uh, medievals who are working in a kind of Aristotelian paradigm can't make sense of a non-material but created being, which is what angels are, uh, according to this this metaphysical scheme. They are they're purely they're pure spirits, uh, and yet they're not uh, yet they're created. And so you have this new category that that distinguishes between uncreated spirit and created spirit, which is a kind of a metaphysical revolution in the Middle Ages. So anyway, there, there are various reasons why there's a lot of speculation, but I wonder if that's part of the part of the back, background motivation for this. The other thing that um, I thought of as you were talking, Alistair, this, I'll just pose this as a question. I wonder if there's something in, uh, if, we, if we're thinking in terms of the, the paradigm of uh, Israel maturing from priest to king to prophet, it does seem like you have the open heaven scene you have with prophets. You know, Elisha sees the the armies of the Lord surrounding him, and Ezekiel is the one who sees the glory up close. And Isaiah goes into the throne room. Uh, Micaiah is in the throne room. So you have this. You have these larger visions, these more expanded visions of uh, angelic um, uh, of some kind of angelic host or the divine council. Those are those are making their appearances within the canon later in Israel's history, and I wonder, I wonder how we should figure that into the question that you asked, Alistair. Is there something going on in late Judaism that is a, a sign of the this this elevation to a kind of prophetic status? So the appearances of angels and access to angels somehow enhanced. Even before that, in the Old Testament, we see this movement from the appearances of angels, for instance, in the Book of Genesis to the appearances that we have in Exodus and elsewhere with a lot more glory 
associated. Um, if we think about the, and also the angel of the Lord, we can maybe discuss later, the angel of the Lord in um, Genesis 17 seems to appear like a regular human being with two others. Whereas in Exodus, we have the burning bush, we have other scenes where the angel is associated with the pillar of cloud and fire. We have scenes of glorious angels. And it seems to me that even within the text itself, there's this movement to greater glory. Um, we could maybe connect that also with Christ's manifestation of himself with greater glory at certain points. And angels also appear, um, this is a point that we can also make about miracles and signs and wonders. Angels don't appear evenly across the whole biblical canon. They seem to cluster at particular points. You can think about angels associated with an angelic phenomena associated with people like Elijah or in the story of Christ or in certain parts of the stories of the patriarchs, particularly the stories of Abraham and Jacob. And this, and think about Daniel, for instance, it seems that there's something significant in where they appear, with whom they're associated. Um, it might help us to understand something about that movement towards a more prophetic um, encounter with and um, engagement with angels. Just to throw another um, kind of consideration in, into the mix, I to totally take the point about speculation um, to do with angels not being helpful. At the same time, um, I mean, Paul talks, well, not necessarily Paul in all cases, but the New Testament refers to um, the law being given by angels. You know, that's in uh, Stephen's speech in Galatians 3. Um, it's in Hebrews 2, and 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 he's even a kind of an important part of a plank in this, the argument of Hebrews, you know, if disobeying a law ministered by angels resulted in uh, a certain punishment, how much greater um, a law ministered by the Son? And that's not, to my knowledge, explicit in the Old Testament, that idea of the law being ministered by uh, angels, but does feature in intertestamental um, literature. So I guess I just wanted to kind of uh, throw that consideration into the mix as, as we're sort of thinking about the, the subject of it. Yeah, another thing thrown in mix, listening to what you both said, Alistair and James, is the fact that in the first century, when um, Jesus is born and then begins his ministry, especially, um, there's the presence, there's the infestation of fallen angels in the Holy Land, in Israel, in synagogues. I mean, you don't see this at all, really, in the old world before this. Uh, you have Paul talking about how uh, the gods that the nations worship, the Gentiles worship, are really demonic. So you have fallen angels administering the uh, <clears throat> the affairs of these pagan Gentile nations. And uh, but now, when you come into Jesus' ministry, you have demon possession all through, all over the place in the Holy Land, and that's something to consider as well. And then the other thing I would say about this, Peter mentioned the metaphysical implications, the metaphysical dilemmas that the medievals are contemplated on a simpler plane here in terms of just modern people. I think modern people don't get the 
biblical anthropology either, you know, whether it's Greek thinking or agnostic or whatever, I don't know, put a name on it. But so many people think that our destiny is to shed our physical bodies and become like angels, become pure spirits. Uh, I don't know how many times I've actually heard there's a particular church in town that actually teaches this, that Jesus shed his humanity upon his ascension, like a snakeskin, and became himself angelic, if you will. Uh, and and um, th- this infects also the thinking of people when they think about death and they think about heaven uh, and the future of Christians. Um, and that also needs to be corrected because, you know, yeah, angels have a place and we're supposed to become like the angels in many ways. I think ways. I think Jim brings that out in some ways. We're supposed to become like a host, like they are, you know, ethically, in terms of our character, our obedience, our service, you know, but not their nature, not we don't have some metaphysical transformation of of our created nature into angelic pure spiritness or whatever. Yeah, Jim, at the at the end of the um at the end of the chapter, Jim talks about angels being models for human beings in worship. So we have the the uh, scenes in heaven in Revelation, continuous worship. And uh, the church has historically picked up on that by employing the songs of heaven in the liturgy, especially the Sanctus uh, from Revelation 4 and also from Isaiah 6. He points out, I think this was, a, 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 this was an interesting twist on that. He says that for both uh, angels and human beings, uh, praise forms a, a the throne of God. So the throne of God in the tabernacle and temple is the ark with the wings of the cherubim stretching up. It's the four four faced creatures, the four creatures that form the throne of heaven in uh, Revelation four and five. But then there are psalms that talk about the Lord being enthroned on the praises of His people. So the uh, the elevation of human beings into that angelic status is partly an elevation of us into a liturgical place where our praises form the throne of God. Uh, and then also points out that uh, angels set uh, a model for men in being guardians of the throne. So uh, Adam was Adam was given the task of guarding the garden. He failed in that task because he didn't guard from the serpent. And then um, at the end of Genesis 3, you have the cherubim who are standing guard at the garden. Uh, they replace Adam for a time uh, during the during the angelic covenant of the uh, the old age. Uh, they replace Adam for a time as the guardians of the throne of God and guardians of God's house. Uh, but then gradually hum- human beings are brought back into that role uh, through the priests, through Levites. Eventually the church as a whole is brought back into that Adamic role of being guardians of the throne. I remember the first time I heard Jim talk about the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory. And I had never realized that that cloud that swirling cloud around the throne of God was actually uh, angels, the myriads and myriads of angels that uh, swarm around God's throne and are in liturgical assembly. It's not water particles. It may look like a storm, and storm clouds, of course, are in some ways for us an image of that, obviously, but that storm cloud is a cloud of people, of, well, of uh of individuals, of angels and men now, of course, uh, Jesus being right there in the center. And that 
once once people understand that, that also uh, kind of transforms your understanding of what's happening on Mount Sinai when the glory cloud comes down, what's happening, you know, as the glory cloud leads them in the wilderness and, and so on, or, or in Ezekiel 1 or Ezekiel 11. And that can open, or in the book of Revelation, when John ascends into the glory cloud, and that's where he's uh, seeing all of this. And that's, uh, it's, it's that kind of, it, Jim had, Jim has that kind of ability to kind of open up things and your imagination then is kind of set free, not to speculate, but to, uh, uh, but to have, you know, a vision of what this is like uh, around the throne of God. Since, since I read Jim many years ago, thought of, you know, clouds of birds that are moving in unison. you got a, a cloud of starlings that's moving as if it were one thing through the sky. You know, Ter- Terrence Malick makes a, makes a, a frequent use of that image in his films. You have these birds just moving as one kind of uh, one connected cloud. I, that, that's what I think of as the, the glory cloud looking something like that because you have winged beings uh, that uh, constitute something that looks like one one thing. Jeff, you mentioned the uh, the cosmic controller section of the chapter, and I wanted to turn us back to that because I think that's that's one of the interesting twists of the chapter. Uh, and again, uh, uh, this is uh, what what Jim is doing. I think I want to re- reiterate what Jeff said. What Jim is doing is trying assembly. He's assembling the evidence of the Bible with and and trying to highlight the significance of angels without running into speculation that moves outside of Scripture and outside of the canon. Uh, but one of the things that Scripture does indicate to us is that angels have some role in managing and running the creation. Uh, he cites Psalm 104, uh, which uh, suggests that angels are somehow involved in managing the weather. He does speculate that the even something as common as as we think is of as, as natural law-driven as gravity is the activity of angels, electrons uh, buzzing around a, a nuclei. I don't know if electrons, I don't know if electrons exist anymore in contemporary physics, but in my day, there were electrons buzzing around the nucleus of, a, of an atom. Uh, that's, that's being controlled, being controlled by, uh, being controlled by angels. Some of those are speculative, but it's speculation that's moving from what the Bible does say about angelic involvement in the, in the, in the physical creation and then extending that into specifics that the Bible doesn't address. One thing I wonder about, and I'll be interested to hear everyone's thoughts on, is whether we're supposed to think of the angels as, in some sense, images of God. Um, So we can think about the ways that the angels are prophets, they're messengers of the Lord, they're kings, they're rulers and authorities. You can think about the way that Daniel speaks of heavenly beings as princes of particular empires. You could also think of them as priests. They serve in the heavenly temple. They're referred to as the sons of God in various places. Uh, So in some sense, they relate to God um, in a way that maybe reflects his image. And when we talk about human beings, in many ways, we're being trained to occupy a sort of angelic role as members of the heavenly council who bear messengers uh, messages to people, or we could think about the way that we're supposed to serve in the the sanctuary, the temple, as those who are ministers within that realm, or those who are rulers and authorities. And whether our concept of the, of the image of God should be far more angelic in its form, um, and maybe what's distinct about 
humanity is not so much the fact that we are images, but the fact that we are the bride. I've wondered about this, and I'll be curious to hear people's perspectives. Alistair, one thing to consider, it's surely true, isn't it, that an angel can bear or reflect God's image in an incredibly close way, in the sense that, let's say, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is able to speak in the first person um, on God's behalf and and spoke talk about things I have done, um, which God has done. So there is clearly that incredible um, closeness and, and glory to angels. At the same time, um, I think a, a really interesting distinction that um, Jim brings out is the fact that uh, mankind has this ability to um, create and um images God in the sense that man is, is inherently creative, um, which angels don't obviously have. So uh, I'm reading from page um, 106 now, and this just struck me as a fascinating observation. Angels were created as a host, um, Jim says, but not a race. Angels do not marry and new angels do not emerge as time goes along. Um, all the angels were created mature at one instant of time, um, and Jim then says, you know, thus angels did not emerge from formlessness. Um, it is quite otherwise with man, he says, being of the earth, earthy, man is built up over time. And, and obviously man is built up over time by kind of man or more particularly the woman's um, ability to form uh, men within, within the womb. And that just strikes me as, um, yeah, a really interesting contrast. So, you do get these incredibly glorious images of angels in the Old Testament. At the, at the same time, there is this distinction. Yes, yeah, so that's part of the question that I have. When we read about the angels, with one possible exception in Zechariah, which I don't think is an exception, they're always represented as male. Um, they're referred to as the sons of God. And there's something about um, they're a host. They don't um, procreate. And there's something about humanity in its... Um, male and female character that makes it stand out. Um, when we think about the angels as well, the fact that they image God is very much a result, I think, of their sonship. Um, images associated with sonship, I think, more within scripture. And we maybe put a lot of weight upon that particular concept that should be borne by a number of different concepts within our understanding of anthropology. And maybe what's distinctive about humanity is not so much that sonship where we are most like the angels, um, but more the fact that the brideship of humanity, the fact that we are male and female, that's what really makes us stand out. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I think there's uh, there's certainly something to that. I, a couple couple thoughts. One is, um, just on James's comment, uh, I take uh, at least the majority of the appearances of the angel of the Lord, and especially when he uses first person speaking uh, in the first person as Yahweh, I take that as a as a theophany, the second person of the Trinity to use uh, later language. Uh, the word, the Son, appears in the angelic covenant as the chief angel, as the archangel. Uh, and then in the fullness of time, he comes and appears as man. So that's part of the transition from angelic to human covenants is the is the the form in which the the sent god the second person 
appears. Uh, the other thing I'd say, I, I, I think you say certainly in general, yeah, angels image God, lots of things image God. I think angels image God in more particular ways, uh, given their a capacity for speech, for example, that uh, that other creatures don't have besides man. So there's a there's a a closer resemblance certainly between uh, angels and uh, humanity. I do think that image of God, image and likeness of God, functions as something of a technical term uh, in uh, in the Bible. And so, and as far as I know, that that language is not unless I'm uh, I, I, it's not used of angels particularly. So I'm. I take I take your point that there are all kinds of ways in which it's true, but I want to reserve the image and likeness of God language for humanity. But I, and I do think you're right that the um, the sexual differentiation of humanity is right at the heart of what what makes man the image of God. I think that's uh, that's really helpful. And um, yeah, I haven't I have to think through the the uh, the notion that the the image is is the brightness of humanity. That's that's a really intriguing thought. On the subject of the nature of the angel of the Lord, it's worth paying attention to the fact that, for instance, in Revelation, you have the angel forbidding John from worshipping him um, because he's just a servant. Yet in um, Joshua 5, when Joshua bows down and worships the commander of the army of the Lord, there's no command not to do that. It's presumed to be the right thing. Uh, Back to the question of cosmic controllers. You know, whether we go with Jim's gravity angels and other kinds of things like that or not, I think one of the things he does bring out here in, in a helpful way is, especially in light of, of modern deistic kind of conceptions that lots of Christians have about God, you know, winding up the world and then letting it run according to, uh, you know, imminent laws, is just the, the basic fact that the cosmos is personal. And God works personally with everything and through, even through angels, however far we want to push that, that we are not enmeshed in a world of mechanistic uh, either determinism or chance, that it's all personal. It's, it's all personally controlled, personally run, personally governed, the divine concurrence which is part of, you know, reform view of providence. We need to remember that. And that can be administered by angels. That kind of light enlivens things, I think. And Christians, I know it's helped me just to think about, you know, life in general. And, you know, I'm outside, I'm walking the dog, I'm seeing trees and it's snowing. I'm like, okay, is this all just kind of happened because of some, you know, material, natural cause, or is is God doing this? And then why is he doing it? I uh, don't always know, but I can be confident. I can trust my heavenly father that all things happen for good. So that personalizing God's interaction with the world also has huge, I think, pastoral benefits for people to get. You know, in him, we live and move and have our being. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.